Once upon a time, in a place not very far away, there were three children who were adopted by a husband and a wife. And there had been a lot of work leading up to this adoption, but on the day that it was to be finalized and legalized, there was a gathering at the courtroom where there was a judge and the kids came together with the couple and a lot of their friends from church and we all went down to the courtroom and the judge asked the children a few questions like, do you want to be in the family? Uh, do you, will you do the things that you need to do? Will you obey and will you uh, do what they tell you and all the rest? And the kids all said yes. And then she said to the parents, will you take care of these children and will you love them and provide for them? And they said yes. And she dropped the gavel on the desk, clunk. And with that clunk, the transaction was legally completed. The children went from one family, a dysfunctional family where the parents couldn't or wouldn't look after them and provide them with the things they needed, and they were transferred with the dropping of the gavel into this new family. Adoption was completed. Some of you have had experience with adoption. Perhaps you've adopted children. Perhaps you are adopted. And so you understand what is meant by the legal transfer of one person from a family into another family. So just hold on to that adoption for a moment and let's think about what happens when we believe in Jesus. When we receive Jesus, what does God do? We come to him and we say, yes, I agree that you, you have assessed me correctly. I'm a sinner. I'm deserving of your wrath. I'm the one that would go to hell unless you had sent your son to die for me, and I want to receive him as my Savior. I know that I can't work out my salvation by doing things or obeying rules or any other way other than to simply receive the free gift of salvation by faith. And whether you do it as a result of Jerry leading in prayer here on a Sunday morning or whether you go home and you do it by the side of your bed on your knees in your bedroom, you say to God, I want to receive your son. And God leaps into action. God begins to do the work of salvation that, that results in him bringing us into his family. Formerly, we were enemies. Formerly, we were part of a, of a dysfunctional family. But God begins to work when we say we want to receive Jesus. He does a lot of things. Our salvation is sort of like a 58-faceted diamond. You know, the round, brilliant, cut diamond has 58 facets, and they all work together to sparkle and shine and grab your attention. <clears throat> and God does all of these things 
like justification and sanctification and redemption and placing us into the body of Christ and baptizing us in the Spirit and much, much more, he adopts us into his family. He makes us sons and daughters of himself. He takes us out of our former dysfunctional family and he makes us his children. And he does all of that and more instantaneously. See, when Jerry says amen, and then he says, if you've prayed the prayer with me, would you raise your hand to indicate? By the time you get your hand in the air, God has done his work. God has saved you. He's forgiven you, redeemed you. And the New Testament uses a lot of these pictures and explains aspects and of our salvation with, with a lot of uh, terms that we uh, learn about in the Scriptures. Adoption is one of them. And this week we hope to look at adoption and how it uh, works and what our responsibilities are as adopted children of God. Next week, we'll look at the inheritance and the heirs of the, uh, of the family. And we'll see, uh, hopefully next week, how heirship and, uh, and the inheritance uh, influence our lives day to day. There are three passages in the Scripture that... Um, speak of adoption uh, that we're going to look at this morning. There are actually five uh, in the New Testament, but we're going to look at three of them because they have to do with adoption that God does when we believe. The first one is in Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 16. Romans 8, 14 to 16, where Paul is speaking uh, to, obviously, the Romans, and this is the chapter that begins, there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And he goes on to explain more and more about that. And then he says in chapter 8, verse 14, all who are being led by the Spirit of God. Well, all who are saved are being led by the Spirit of God. These, he says, are sons and daughters of God. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading again to fear, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The word Abba is a word that is an Aramaic word, and it's the word that Jesus used when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane praying to his father the night before he was crucified, Father, Abba, Father, if it be possible, could this cup be removed from me? Would you make it possible? You can do everything. Would you make it possible for me to avoid the suffering that's coming up? Nevertheless, not your will but mine. And he uses the term Abba, which, is, which does not mean daddy, but it means an, an, an endearment and a, an intimate term that gives more personal intimacy to the relationship of father-son. It's more personal and intimate than father itself. And that's the word that we now 
are able to use because of our adoption into the family of God. We're given this new intimate personal relationship with the creator of all things. The sovereign of the universe is our father. It's almost as if we, as if your child would crawl up into your lap after skinning their knee and you just cuddle them and hold them close. It's that intimate. It's that close a relationship that God works in us and provides for us and brings us into as we trust him and receive by faith his salvation. Adoption is just one of a number of spiritual blessings, but the second reference to it is found in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 5. And really the sentence begins in the last two words of verse 4 where it says, in love. He predestined us to adoption as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. In this case, Paul's making the point that God does what he does in love for us, for his people, for his human race, and all those who will trust him, he acts in love and he predestines them to adoption as sons. He, he does what he does in love, John 3:16. God so loved the world. So love is the motivation that God has that propels, I don't want to say propels, that it's the motivation that drives him to do the work of adoption and we find that he's predestined us so this adoption in God's mind has been completed in eternity past this is something that he does in his mind beforehand and he actually before he actually does it to us and he does it in love. History is loaded, I think, with examples of adoptive parents who've adopted children not out of love, but so that they might utilize them and, and exploit them. And orphan trains in the 19th century would take children from the East Coast and, and, and send them to the Midwest, and parents would, uh, would, would take them and take them home and, and not love them but use them for their own ends. That's not what God does. He doesn't adopt us to exploit us. He loves us and he takes us into his family. He does it all in advance and he does it simply because he wants to. It's according to the good pleasure of his will why does God do anything really because he wants to he has no need see he's perfect he can't become any more perfect he can't become any different he does what he does simply because he wants to He's also working all things after the counsels of his own will, and he's bringing human history 
to a conclusion of his own design and a timing of his own choosing. But in this case, he's adopting us. And he, if you read the rest of Ephesians chapter 1, there are a number of spiritual blessings that he does and does, gives to us as soon as we believe and according to his good pleasure. He does it all to promote his glory. You say, well, that seems awful arrogant. That seems proud, and we're supposed to not be proud. Yeah, but we're not God, you see. The glory of God and his self-promotion of his glory is entirely appropriate. He's the one to whom all glory is to be ascribed. He's the one and the only one who is all-glorious in his person. So if he wants to promote his glory, and in this case, he wants to promote the riches of his grace, which adds to his glory, so that the watching universe, when, when they see what he does for the, the sinner who is justified and adopted, the watching universe looks at that grace and that display of grace and says, wow. What grace is this? That's God's objective, to promote the lavish riches of his grace, and he does it through the mechanism of adoption. The love of God is the context. The timing of God is eternal. The reasoning of God is that he simply wanted to. It was his good pleasure, and in adopting us, he promotes the enormous, lavish riches of of his grace. The most extended comment uh, on adoption is found in Galatians chapter 3 and 4, the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4. And so um, in Galatians chapter 3, this is the verse that start, a chapter that starts off with Paul saying to the Galatians, you foolish Galatians. I'm amazed, shocked, really, that you've been so soon seduced from your position of faith in Christ to thinking that you have to do the works of the Jewish law, to thinking that you have to be circumcised and keep the law. The people who have taught you this are terribly in error, terribly wrong, and you don't understand your position in Christ. So by the time he gets to the end of the chapter, he's saying this. You are all sons and daughters of God through faith in Christ Jesus. All of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs, according to promise. There's a lot here, but I want to point out just a couple of things from this uh, passage, and then we'll move to, to the chapter, to fourth chapter. He says that you have uh, been clothed with Jesus Christ. In other words, you've been placed into Christ, and when God sees Christ, he sees you in Christ, all the benefits of Christ's death have been applied to you. Benefits of his resurrection applied to you. Everything that Christ is 
has been applied to you to the extent that Paul can say, you are clothed with Christ. And in being clothed with Christ, your status has changed. You Gentiles, your status has changed from you were formerly slaves to your debauched pagan rituals that did nothing to bring you close to the true and the living God. You served those rituals and those debauched and heathen pagan practices and priests and all the rest. You served them like slaves. You've been delivered from that. Now you're sons and daughters of God. You Jews, your status has changed because you are carrying the burden of the law to which you were slaves. But you've become sons and daughters of God. The law has done its work. The law was to lead us to Christ, and that's done with. We've come to Christ, and now we don't have any responsibility to the Jewish law. The point Paul makes here is that we're out of the old family. We're out of the old context of law and judgment. And we're into the family of God by which we're called sons and daughters of God. And here's another point uh, that he makes. All distinctions fall away. You see, there's no gender distinctions. There's no Jew-Gentile distinctions. There's no class distinctions. It doesn't matter if you're slave or you're the master of slaves. It doesn't matter if you're male, female. It doesn't matter if you're Jew, Gentile, and any other distinctions that you might possibly think of. They all fall away because you've been brought into Jesus Christ. And then he moves into chapter 4 where he says, Now I say... As long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, though he is owner of everything. He's under guardians and managers until the date set by the father. So we too, when we were children, were held in bondage under the elementary principles of the world. When Paul opens this chapter, he has in mind certain aspects of Roman adoption, one of the aspects of Roman family life and adoption was that the father set the time for the son to take over the family business and to move into a position of equality with the father whereby the two of them continued to run the family business and there was no age of majority like we have today. There was no age at which a person became his own legal entity. That was set by the father. And until the father disclosed that date and made that transaction official, the child, even though he was an heir and in one sense owned everything, he didn't have the legal step taken to make him a controller. He wasn't his own legal entity until the father said so. 
And so he says, when we were children, held in bondage under the elemental principles of the world, read our old family, and many of the things that we take for granted and are find normal in our world are basically elemental principles that are in uh, the larger sense opposed to God. We live in a world that ignores God, that rebels against God, that won't have anything to do with God. And that worldview brings about a lot of things that we accept as normal. And we were held in bondage, we are held in bondage until we come to Christ, to those elemental principles. We think that's the way things are, and that's the way things should be, but it's not. When the fullness of time came, in other words, the Father decided it was the right time, he sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, born of a woman so he could be human, fully human, under the law so he could redeem those who were under the law, get them out from under the law. In redeeming us from the law, he adopts us, again, as sons and daughters. We had to be redeemed and out from under the law so that we might receive that adoption. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. Therefore, you're no longer a slave. Even when you were an heir, you're no, you're no better than a slave. You're no longer like that. Now you're a full son and daughter of God. In this passage, he and in others, other passages, the translators have, have interpreted the word sons, which is the way it appears in the, in the Greek text, and has added sons and daughters, perhaps to engage current cultural uh, issues around male, female, gender, specific identity. The, the point that Paul is making when he writes in the Greek, you're all sons, and he doesn't say you're sons and daughters. That's an addition for the translators. He doesn't say, he doesn't say that to put down women. He doesn't say that to put down anybody uh, one way or the other because the word sons is not gender-specific. The word sons refers to a status. So women are elevated to the status of sons as well as men, and that's why he can say in the end of the last chapter, you're all one in Christ. There's no slave or free. You've become sons. You've been elevated to the status of sons. So try not to think of it as something that's gender-specific that elevates one over the other. It doesn't. Sons is a status in this context. It's not gender-specific. And, men, if you were uh, wondering, you don't have to feel uncomfortable about being part of the bride of Christ. See, that's also not gender-specific. 
the bride of Christ includes all those who've put their faith in Christ and Jesus is the head of his church and the bridegroom of the bride. So those are things that happen which God does in terms of adopting us as his children. What about us? The children in the original adoption story, they too had uh, responsibilities. They had rights, but they had responsibilities. Well, when God brings us into his family, he gives us rights, and we do well not to focus entirely on the rights, but also to take note of our responsibilities. And I should throw in at this point that in Roman law, <clears throat> you didn't, you couldn't, it, it wasn't necessary that you adopted a child. Uh, in Roman law, you could adopt an adult. And that was because continuing the family name was not the most important thing. What was the most important thing in Roman adoption and in Roman life was that the father who was the priest of the family cult and kept the family in, in worship and devotion to the gods of hearth and home and whatever other uh, pagan deities were in the worship system of the family, the father as the priest wanted a son not only to carry on the family name, but to carry on the, the priestly line, to carry on the priesthood of the family. The, the worst thing in the world was for a Roman father to die without anyone to carry on the priestly intercession and duties of to carry on priestly duties for his family, on behalf of his family. So, <clears throat> you could adopt an adult, and, uh, and as an adult or a child, certain benefits and responsibilities that, uh, that were not the case before were, became the case. So, obviously, this, and, and we've talked about this a few minutes ago, but the first benefit that happens and carries with it responsibilities is that when we're taken from our old family and put into the new family, we're, we're saved from all that dysfunction and we're brought into God's family. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4 talk about being children of wrath. Among them too, among them we too all previously lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. You see what our previous family got us into? The wrath of God, says Romans 1, is rightly and justly directed to, toward people who won't acknowledge God. So, as children of Satan, he does say to the, Jesus does say to the Pharisees in Matthew 13, you are of your father the devil, he's been a liar from the beginning, so we're in the same position, you see. 
Only Ephesians talks about us as being children of wrath, just as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our wrongdoings, made us alive together with Christ. So we're taken from, the, from the, a, a family that would only bring us death and we're put into a family in which we've been made spiritually alive in relationship to God. Second thing that would happen, would, which would be a benefit, is this adult son may well have had a business of his own and a business life. And when he's adopted into this new family, he brings with him all the debts and liabilities of his a previous life. And so the first thing that happens is that all his debts are canceled. The adoptive father, when he adopts him into his family, cancels out all his liabilities, pays his bills, pays his debts. So when Paul says in Colossians chapter 2, 13 and 14, when you were dead in your wrongdoings and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our wrongdoings, get this, having canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us. I think I have, I can't tell what time it is, but I'm going to take the time anyway. So in, in Roman times, if you were a prisoner in jail, on the door of your cell would be posted a list of the crimes for which you were serving time. And when your time was up and you had paid your debt to society, you would be released and that writing of ordinances or that writing of crimes that you had done would be stamped with a big canceled sign. And then that would be filed away. Maybe you'd be given a copy of it so you could get a job without a, without a past criminal history or something. And, but anyway, the point is that when Jesus died, he took our charge sheet on himself. He took our sins on himself and he canceled the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. All of his assets <clears throat> of this adopted adult son, all of his assets, not only are, is he transferred into a family, not only are his debts canceled, but all of his assets then come under the control of the adoptive father, the supervision of the adoptive father. He could still be active in his own business, he could still be active and in the father's business, but all of his assets now were under the supervision of the adoptive father. He did nothing without the consent of the adoptive father. It's a great parallel to our position in Christ because when Jesus, when God saves us, he takes control of our lives. And the degree to which we live the Christian life successfully is the degree to which we yield that control. 
and submit to his control. But everything about us belongs to God. So 1 Corinthians, Paul will say, uh, chapter 6, verses 19 and 20, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God and that you are not your own? What? But I'm a free human being. I don't belong in that sense to anyone. Oh, yeah, you do. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, and you've received the benefits of salvation, one of which is adoption, you are not your own. God owns you. He bought you with the blood of his son, and he owns you. Even his personal relationships, the relationships of this adoptive son, come under the supervision of the Father, so that in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14, he'll say, don't be mismatched with unbelievers. What do righteousness and lawlessness share together? Proverbs is always exhorting the son of the Father to stay away from sin and evil companions. Bad company corrupts good morals. Our personal relationships come under the supervision of of the Father, and the Father says, don't be unequally matched. We usually apply this to marriage, but it has also an application to business. We need to be very careful about the binding relationships that we get into based on whether or not the other party is, is a child of God. Don't be unequally matched. And finally, his father, his adoptive father, had rights of discipline. Of course, one would expect a father to discipline a child, but the father's right of discipline extended to the adult son. And so when, when the writer to the Hebrews in chapter 12 of Hebrews says it was for discipline that you endure, and I'm going to read more than you have on the slide in front of you, Hebrews chapter 12, I'm going to begin reading at verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are legitimate, illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. We understand discipline. We discipline our children. We understand that we were disciplined by our parents. We respect them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time. It seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. That's why Romans 5, 1 and 2 can say we've been justified by faith and we glory and exult in the hope of the glory of God and we also exult and take joy in our tribulations. What? Why do we joy in our tribulations? Because they're not for nothing. Our tribulations are are the discipline of God as he shapes 
our character and eventually brings about more and more righteousness. For the moment, all discipline seems not to be pleasant. But it's painful. And yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. You see, God is concerned more about your character than he is about your happiness. He's concerned more about your character because he's conforming you in terms of Romans 8 to the image of his son. In conclusion then, having been saved and having the blessings of God's grace given to us so that we have a new standing before him, we are now by adoption sons and daughters, children of God with the righteousness of Christ. And that affects how we are to live. We're commanded more than once to walk or to live in a manner consistent with our new family and our new father and our new, we'll see next week, elder brother. Ephesians 4.1 says, I implore you as a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ to walk in a manner worthy of the calling, calling with which you have been called. 1 Thessalonians 2, 11 and 12, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. Philippians 1, 27, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. See how important it is that we live in a way that reflects who we belong to. How important it is that we live a life that honors our Heavenly Father, who is Himself the perfection of righteousness, the perfection of holiness, the perfection of all that He is, everything that God is, He is perfectly so. And we are called to live in a way consistent with that relationship. Are we going to fall? Are we going to fail? Of course we are. Romans chapter 7, the end of the chapter, Paul is clear that there are two principles that work within us until we are fully and finally delivered to heaven. Right now we're free from the penalty of sin. Our sins will not be held against us. Right now we're free more and more from the power of sin as we learn to walk worthy of our calling. Nobody has to sin. No Christian is compelled to sin. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, there's no temptation taken you, but has already been seen by somebody else. It's common. But God is faithful who will with the temptation also send a way to escape that you may be able to successfully walk according to the calling. The moment we believe, we come into this new relationship, which God initiates by adoption. We're extracted from our old family. Our debt of sin is canceled. Our resources of time, talent, and treasure now come under his supervision. We don't make a move without consulting him. 
Our personal relationships come under his control, and when he deems it appropriate to shape our character, to conform us to the image of his son, he exercises his right of discipline. Not to make us lose heart, but to guide us into godliness. Father in heaven, Father in heaven, thank you, thank you, thank you for your son who died on the cross and gave you the freedom to do for us all that you do so that when we believe and we trust you to deliver salvation as you have promised to all who will receive Jesus you do it far greater things than we could ever have asked or imagined and so this week let us live in a manner worthy of our calling guide us we pray through the minefields of our culture and let us reflect you in everything we do so that even the ungodly might see us and glorify our Father who's in heaven. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.